Mark chapter 9. So you guys do the recording. You can just start right after this, okay? Mark chapter 9. Well, I read an article this past week that spoke of a man who was a pastor at Covenant Life Church. And he's the founding, he was the pastor of this church, uh, which is the, one of the founding churches of Sovereign Grace Ministries. Some of the music we uh, sing in here is from Sovereign Grace Ministries. He was a pastor there for 11 years. There's him up there with his family. Also, he was the author of the best-selling book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Remember that? This past week, this man, his name is Joshua Harris, on Instagram, posted that he was renouncing his Christian faith. And I'm sorry, I hear someone beeping. If we could turn that off. Thank you. Okay. Let me back up a little bit, okay? (laughs) Kind of got a rough start this morning, don't we? That's okay. His name is Joshua Harris. He was a pastor and author of a best-selling book. And he uh, posted on Instagram this past week that he was renouncing his Christian faith and he was divorcing his wife. So here's a man who's been married for 21 years. He has three beautiful children. He's been a pastor. He's actually written books on fidelity and, and marriage and a ministry and to the Lord and publicly respected in many ways and now has come to this and has announced this. And obviously there's a lot of issues going on in his heart that we don't know about because we can't see his heart. But we do know there's one issue that he's publicly talked about, and that is the difficulties he's having in his marriage, and he had in his marriage. In an interview last year with NPR, Harris talked about some of these marriage difficulties, and this is what he said. He said, I think in these difficulties, in the difficulties of marriage, these difficulties uh, made us realize how there's heartache and there's pain no matter which pathway you choose in life. There's no path that you can choose that can protect you from that, which is pretty much true. And why is that? Because our world is cursed, right? Because of sin and sinners sin. <laughs> so if you're living in the home with someone that's a person, they're a sinner, you're a sinner. And so it's difficult. And this announcement though, that about their separation and eventual then therefore divorce, this is what he wrote. I want you to listen to this. And with discerning ears, he says, in recent years, some significant changes have taken place in both of us. It's with sincere love for one another and understanding of our unique story as a couple that we are moving forward with this decision to separate. We hope to create a generous and supportive future for each other and for our three amazing children in the years ahead. Now, what you what you hear in that are some sweet words of explanation but are tainted with the unseen poison of deception, lies, and eventually ruin. I mean, this is not an example of sincere love for one another. This is a decision to continue to tear a family apart. This is not a unique story. That's what everyone says. Oh, I'm sure you've never heard this before. It's pretty much the story of the world that there's pain because of sin and the hope this divorce will provide a generous and supportive future for their three children is a myth. And if, if, when people go into that with that concept, oh, this will actually help our children. And as a result, these children 
will experience and are experiencing inner pain that will get worse and remain with them the rest of their life. And if you've been a part of a family that's had divorce, you know that it doesn't go away. That doesn't help, right? And so this Instagram picture-perfect family up here looked amazing. This is before they announced this. Well, that painting, that picture painted on Instagram is a lie, right? It's not a picture-perfect family. And then in the next picture that they are trying to paint is that there's going to be this perfect divorce. Yeah, that's not true either. And I think what happens when we have men like this that are men in positions of leadership and ministry and teach on these things I'm teaching on, and and they have these kind of conflicts in their marriage that end up ending a 20-plus year marriage and divorce, you ask the question, why? Like, why is there conflict like this? Why was there fighting between, between them, in fact, to the point where they couldn't even resolve it and go forward? And sometimes we ask this as parents, why, right? Why are you guys always fighting? You ever ask that as a parent? Spouses sometimes wonder, why are we always trying to be at war with each other? Employees can't understand, why is there constant conflict in our workplace? Maybe I'll find another job where there's no problems. <laughs> Good luck. Children ask, why are those kids so mean? Christians wonder, why is there conflict in the church? That doesn't seem right. You see, there's conflict in every relationship. And we wonder why. Why is that the case? And that's kind of what we're studying. We're studying about this idea of how do we have unity and peace in relationships? What are the principles that Christ has laid out for us that are principles for peace and unity in relationships? So there's conflict in every relationship, in marriage and families, with with friends at work and, and even within the church. And these conflicts can cause marital marriages to end in divorce. They can cause churches to split. And they can cause long-term friendships to end. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, we have to first identify the problem and then see what the solution is, what Christ's solution is. So we're studying from Mark chapter 9 about the principles for relational unity. And the disciples were in a conflict with each other. They were arguing with each other. And Jesus used this opportunity to teach these men. To teach these men about Christ-centered relationships. So let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come with real struggles, with real conflicts, with real relational issues. And we bring them before you. And then we look to you in your word and say, what's the truth? What's really going on? This world speaks to us and this world speaks all the deceptions and lies and the answers that aren't answers. But we want to know the truth. Jesus said, my words are truth. So may we understand what Jesus was teaching this morning and how we by faith can follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. The first principle we studied last week was that truth clarifies and misunderstanding confuses. Jesus taught the disciples the truth, but they misunderstood him, didn't they? They didn't understand because they had these preconceived ideas of what they thought life should be like 
And they didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer and die. And and they didn't understand what resurrection meant. And because of their misunderstanding, therefore, they resisted Jesus and his teaching. We saw in Mark chapter 8 how Peter argued with Jesus. And then after that, in Mark chapter 9, they decided to clam up and decided to allow sinful fear to control them. So look down in Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. The Bible says, And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying. So they still didn't understand. And they were afraid to ask him. So the disciples were confused because they misunderstood. So what should they have done at this point? They should have humbly come to the Lord and said, we don't understand. Can you help us to understand? So the first principle we said is is so important for Christian unity is that in relationships, we can many times assume things. We can assume so many different things and rush to judgment. Instead, we need to have a conversation and seek clarity by seeking the truth. And the second principle we studied last week was that the root of conflict is self-exaltation. So look down in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, and we, we said that we probably think that house was the house of Peter because of the definite article, the house in Capernaum. So when he was in the house, probably Peter's house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This this passage actually answers the common question we asked earlier is why is there conflict and what was the answer that that is given here by Mark in this passage? And that is that the disciples were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And we said really the source of conflict comes from this desire for self-exaltation. And we said pride is really what underlines that. Self-exaltation is pride, the desire to have yourself be lifted up. We said pride is the self-exalting desire that thinks I am the most important and my will is of most importance. And we said last week that if you put yourself in the position to think that I am of most importance, you're putting yourself in the place of God. And if you think my will is of most importance, you're operating as if you are God. And so we must see how, how wicked this is in the eyes of God in day-to-day life when we decide that we are going to operate in this way with this prideful heart, that this really is dethroning God. And we dethrone him in our desires and in our, in our thoughts and our words and our actions because we want to be God. And so we have to see how terrible this is before we can really see what the solution is. And so we must understand what was the reason? What's the, what's the problem here? And we have these self-centered, with these self-consumed, self-worshipping hearts. We really want self-worship and self-rule. And so what's the solution? And I want, before we go into that, I want you to notice what Jesus does here in this situation. Jesus sits down in the house with these 12 men, and he has a conversation. Why do you think he did this? Why do you think that he didn't talk to them on the road? 
Why do you think he didn't just ignore it? I'm going to die in a couple of months anyways. I mean, it's all going to kind of happen and they'll just figure it out eventually, won't they? Why do you think he did this? And this was a difficult conversation for him to have, right? Do you think he really wanted to be like, there's a lot of conflict. So guys, what you guys talking about in the way? Like, let's talk about this. That's hard to do, isn't it? And I think he did this because he was motivated in love and his love compelled uh, him to talk to them and to talk to them about the truth. And what did he want in this relationship? What did he want? He wanted these guys to be reconciled to each other. And he wanted these guys to be reconciled to God. And I think the overarching desire that Jesus had here was he loved these guys enough to seek reconciliation, not just with himself, but really with each other to say, this is how unity takes place. And this is how you can be unified with God and reconciled to God. I mean, Jesus was on this earth to provide reconciliation. So wouldn't it make sense that he's here, here having conversations about that? And how did Jesus seek reconciliation? It was through conversation. He didn't ignore the argument. He didn't reject them because the argument wasn't like, he's like, guys, stop fighting all the time, right? <laughs> Sounds like me sometimes as a parent, isn't it? But what he did was he said, you know what, guys? Let's talk about these things. So Jesus sought reconciliation through conversation because he loved them. And let, me, let me encourage you, if you have a difficult conflict that you're in, to seek reconciliation through conversation. And so if you're a parent and your kids are in the home, right, and they're in conflict, what do you do about it? You could yell at them, tell them to stop. Has that worked for you before, by the way? <laughs> now, you could ignore it and hope they grow up, or you could sit down and seek what? Seek reconciliation. I mean, that's really your desire in it. That's your desire. It's like, I want to help this child understand what it means to be reconciled to this brother or sister and to reconcile to God. Or if you're in a relationship of, of a, as a husband or a wife or a boyfriend, a girlfriend, and you're having some kind of difficulty in that relationship, your goal in that relationship is reconciliation with each other, but also with God. I can remember, uh, this is probably about 10, maybe 11 years ago. I was working in a, the children's program at the church I was out in South Carolina, and I noticed that these two ladies didn't ever talk to each other. And so one time I was talking to one of them, and I heard her say some things about her that was not very nice. And I thought, well, that's not really good. And I realized that these ladies, even though, you know, even though it was at church, <laughs> these ladies were not reconciled to each other. They were fighting with each other, and they had something against each other. And so I just, when I was talking to one of the ladies, I said, well, why don't you talk to her? I was like, well, I don't, I don't like her, you know. And so I went to the lady and said, why don't you talk to her? So what I actually did is I said, you know what, let's do this. Can we just try this, please? Let's, let's just meet together. I'll be kind of in between you guys. And we'll, I'll just pray at the beginning. And one side can just talk. The other side can just talk. And maybe you guys can seek reconciliation with each other. And they didn't want to do that. But they're like, in the end of the day, they wanted to. But the beginning of it's like, I don't know if I really want to do that. But I said, just, is that, what's, what does God want you to do? And what was interesting as we did that, sat in the room, it was very difficult. And as one side talked... Then the other side talked. They started crying and apologizing and hugging. At the very end of the day, they were like best friends. And they walked out of there. And I remember sitting at the table going, what just happened in here? <laughs> and what I realized, what just happened was God worked. God worked. And, and really, we naturally want to run from conflict. We don't like to talk about things. But let me just ask you, please follow the example of Jesus here. And that is, if you have a difficulty, go talk to that person. 
You say, well, they don't know about it. Well, go talk to them about it still and hear what they have to say. Now, of course, Jesus was perfect, so he had no um, need to apologize or to seek how he might be wrong. But whether you're a pastor, whether you're a father, a mother, a brother, friend, whatever, boss, we need to have the humility to enter that conversation, understanding that we could be the one that's actually the transgressor. And so make sure we have that. So that was last week. This is this week. What's the answer? And the answer is the humble servant wins. That's the third principle. The humble servant wins. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Again, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, and their hearts were full of this self-exalting pride. So what did Jesus teach them? He taught that the one who is truly great in God's eyes, the one who is truly first in God's eyes, is not the one who beats the other person down with a verbal or a nonverbal war. It's the person who is humble and serves the other person, which is so counter to how we think, isn't it? I mean, we don't think this way. I remember one time I was teaching in a a public school um, at a good news club um, out in South Carolina, and we had about 100 kids in there, and I was teaching on something about this and serving and how we should be servants, and this little boy is in the front, and he goes, no way, I won't do that. (laughs) And I remember talking to him afterwards. He was one of those kids that always was kind of, you know, cutting up and stuff. So I thought, well, afterwards, I'll talk to him about it. So I was in the hallway with him, and I was talking about this. And he says, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to serve anyone. Well, why does someone have an attitude like that? Because naturally, that's not how we think, right? We naturally want to be that person who is on top. And why is it that we, uh, what do we want, I should say, in our conflict? What are we trying to get out of it? We want to win, don't we? I mean, think about it. When you are verbally attacking someone or you're non-verbally <laughs> in, a, in like a, maybe a, a way that's like this, a, a, this passive-aggressive kind of move, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get on top. You imagine two children who are in the back of a car, right, and they have this electronic device, and they're, they're fighting with each other. What are they trying to do? Like someone's trying to win. What does that mean? That I get the electronic device. Or you have a spouse who's shooting off harsh comments to someone else because they moved their special cup or whatever it is, right? And what are you trying to do? You're trying to win. So all conflict really comes down to this, is that you are, in your worldly way of thinking, trying to top that person and trying to win. So in the relationship, people seek to win by being quick to speak, slow to listen, swift to jump to anger. We manipulate, we lie, we yell, we gossip, we fume, we plot, we dig in, we ignore, we give the silent treatment, anything to win. But listen, do you ever win? I mean, think about it. Do you ever lay in your bed at night and you're going to sleep and you're like, I'm so glad I yelled at that person, slammed the door, screamed at him, you know, and and still bitter about it. I feel so good. You ever feel that way? (laughs) Like, right? We, We try But at the end of the day, we're always the losers in it. So what's God's way of winning 
in his eyes? What's his way of winning? And how do you win for the glory of God? Or as Jesus said, how, are you, how can you be great in God's eyes? And it's actually, according to Jesus' teaching, it's through humility. It's through humility. So the question then is, what does it mean to be humble? And I kind of came up with this definition based upon the teaching of the scriptures. So what is humility? Humility is being so filled with a desire to exalt God that you will go as low as necessary to serve others. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, let him be last of all and servant of all. This principle does not call for uh, self-depreciation or self-hate. This is not the idea that Jesus is talking about here. Self-hate is really a kind of self-centered isolation from God and from other people. It's kind of, a, it's really a selfishness. And, and humility is not just talking about modesty and how you speak about yourself, but it's really this idea that you're so filled with the desire to have God exalted that you will go as low as necessary to serve other people and to glorify God. And so it's the exact opposite of pride. I mean, notice the contrast. Pride is all about me. It's all about what I want and my will. And humility is all about exalt, exalting God by doing his will and going low for the Lord in humility. So humility recognizes, notice humility recognizes uh, who God is. Humility is being filled with the desire to exalt God. So who is God? And recognizes and really has a correct view of God, that God is holy, that he's righteous, he's high, he's lifted up, he deserves worship, he's, he's far from me in his goodness and his character, and therefore has the right for me to exalt him and to worship him. In fact, think about this psalm right here. Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is on high, so here the psalmist is recognizing that God is on high, he yet, yet he regards the lowly. So he recognizes the high position of God and recognizes his low position and the proud he knows from afar off. So the psalmist has a proper view of God and therefore has a humble perspective. Or think about this psalm right here. Oh, Lord. So he, he thinks about who the Lord is and then he thinks about himself. What is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing Shadow. So humility is acknowledging that God is superior than I and worthy, therefore, of devotion. And therefore, I'm going to exalt God, God's way. And what is God's way of exalting him? It's by going low and serving people. When we exalt God in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, what's that called? It's called worship. So what this is really here, humility really is the worship of God. So notice the contrast. Humility is being filled with this desire to exalt God. So you go as low as necessary. You're like, well, where do you get that from? Well, look at the, the verse there where Jesus says that we are to be last. I mean, sometimes you look at that and you think, like, how low do you have to go? You have to be willing to be the least important person in the room. Last of all. And he says, we must be the servant of all. Again, Really? Even those people we don't like? <laughs> we have to serve them? So this is so counter to how we think. And why is that? Because I think we think a lot of times like these disciples. We're just so self 
consumed. But if you really desire, if you really desire to lift God up, you really desire to bring glory to God, it's not just sitting in a pew and it's not just singing some songs. If you really desire to glorify God, you will go as low as you can as necessary to serve people and glorify God. This past spring, and you remember I taught a little bit on this, where I, when I said, really, our mission this year, our mission is that we want to serve one another by God's grace, with God's word, what? For God's glory, for God's glory. And I really hope, church, that that is, that is on our mind. That is our passion. That is our desire. That is our mission, that we come into this building here, or we go out with each other, and we're thinking, how can I serve these people? And ultimately, why is that? Because I want to glorify God, so I'm going to take God's word. I'm going to depend upon the Spirit of God, and I'm going to serve people, because I want to lift God up. I want to lift him high. So what, what should we want in relationships? We should want to exalt God, and we should seek to exalt him through, through this reconciliation. God can restore relationships. He can mend churches. He can bring health to friendships and marriages. And how does he do that? It's by his grace. And his grace comes, as we saw last week, his grace comes as we humble ourselves before God and before each other. Now, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? Because I think what's interesting is Jesus here is teaching these 12 disciples... And then these disciples took these principles and they wrote about them in epistles. So remember, Mark's gospel is really what we said. It's really Peter's gospel. And Peter learned what he learned from Jesus. So it's interesting when you look at 1 Peter and you study 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you can see a lot of what Peter was teaching comes from what Jesus taught them. And so one of the exercises I've been doing as I've been going through Mark is reading through First and Second Peter, and it's really interesting to see how these parallel. It's like Jesus teaches this, and then Peter kind of fleshes this out. So look down in First Peter chapter two and verse fifteen, and Peter writes to the churches: "This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people." And then P- Peter starts going through different relationships through difficult relationships. And he gives instructions how to respond as Christians. How do we do God's will within this relationship? So how should we respond? Well, first of all, in verse 15, he says, it's God's will that you do good in that relationship. What about if they're really bad to you? Well, we'll find that out. But he says, no, you continue to serve them. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as what? As servants of God. So we're to serve people. So what does that look like in everyday life? Well, verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, that's the church. Fear God and honor the emperor. And remember who the emperor was. Nero, who took Christians, dipped them in tar, impaled them, and let them on fire. So honor the emperor? So just think about that. Think about how counterculture that would be. Think about how much of a testimony that would be. And then look down in verse 18. He continues on with another relationship that's within the workplace. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but listen to the last part, but also to the unjust. 
ooh, what? And then he goes down to the marriage relationship. First Peter chapter three, verse one, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do obey, do not obey the word, they may be one, which I think is an interesting word. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful, um, respectful and pure conduct. So how can a wife win in her relationship with her husband? What does it say? With her conduct, she actually can win without a word. We won't go into that one right now. But it's with her conduct. It's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of how counterculture this. Like, how do you win in the relationship? And it's like, have conduct. As he says in verse number two, that is respectful to your husband and is pure. It is pure in its conduct. Or how about the... To the husbands, verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So listen to her. (laughs) So how do you seek to win your wife? Maybe sit down and have a conversation and try to understand her. And then go to verse number 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. So there you go. You see that unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love see these relationships were designed as reconciliation a tender heart and what a humble mind don't repay evil for evil we're reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless bless and so what we see in peter's teaching is this fleshing out of jesus teaching we we exalt god and we seek reconciliation as we have this posture of humility and service toward one another Go back to Mark chapter 9. So as we come into, um, as we think about these conflicts that we find ourselves in, the questions are not, how can I hurt this person because they hurt me? Not, how can I argue to get my point across so loudly or so painfully that they give in? It's not, how can I verbally bite and dig so I can come out on top? It's this, how can I serve that person and exalt God. Like, what can I do to bring reconciliation to the relationship with the, the individuals in the relationship and also with God? And so that's the heart of a person who is humbly seeking to serve. And so what I want you to do right now, I just want you to kind of span in your mind the relationships that you have. Maybe some of the difficult ones, maybe some of the good ones, but just span the difficulties in your mind with the relationships and ask this question, how can you go low in humility to serve that person and seek reconciliation. Like, what can you do? And you might think, well, I know some things they can do. So let's not think about them right now. Just think about ourselves and our own responses. Let me just give you some ideas. Number one, maybe you need to come into that relationship and confess some things you did wrong in the relationship without excuses. So maybe you need to come into that relationship and confess some of the things you have done wrong without excuses. And it's not saying, well, now I should have done this, but of course you shouldn't have done that. That's called an, help me out, it's called an excuse. That's right. Or if you hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have had that, but I'm still sorry for. That's called an excuse, right? Or sorry, my hormones have been raging. That's called an excuse or 
or the, stre- the kids are just stressing me out, or work's been so bad, that's called an excuse. No, it's, I was wrong when I said or did this, will you forgive me? No excuses. So maybe you need to come into that relationship and, and confess what you've done wrong. Maybe if you don't know, you should ask. So number two, maybe you need to be willing to just listen to the other person's point of view. Like you could be wrong and with that humility to say, you know, what, I could be wrong about this. How about number three? If that person asks for forgiveness, then forgive them unconditionally. No grudges, no silent treatment. And if if they don't seek forgiveness, have really a spirit and a desire and pray for that, that forgiveness would happen at some point in the future. And I want you to kind of, sometimes when you talk about forgiveness, people get confused and forgiveness is agreeing not to hold someone's sin against one another, but, but it's different than trust. So forgiveness and trust are different things. So you should forgive unconditionally, but trust is earned as a person takes steps of repentance. So, but you should unconditionally desire to forgive them. Maybe you need to pursue that person in love. And it doesn't mean you ignore their sin, but love does cover a multitude of sin. You say, how can I serve this person? And maybe you just seek to understand how that person's wired, right? Try to serve him and say like, okay, maybe they think differently. Maybe they live, they have a different background than I do. Maybe their culture is different. Maybe they approach this differently than I, maybe I need to have that perspective. Try to, to find something you can do for them without expecting anything in return. Maybe the last one, pray for that person and then offer to pray with that person. So how can you serve within the relationship you have? And that is we need to be humble. You can think about it like this. The person who is humble first wins, right? And so let's seek to humbly serve one another. And the fourth point, we're going to stop on this point this morning, is your love for a believer reveals your love for Jesus. Look at verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus was, was teaching and he used a child as an illustration. So I thought I'd bring up one of my kids. You guys want to be an illustration today? Would that be okay? Okay, Isaac, why don't you come up here, buddy? This is the, the great pain and pleasure of being a pastor's kid right here, okay? This is my son, Isaac, here. Now, when you look at a, a child like this, what do you think about? You might think, oh, that child's got a future, right? If he's on the Disney Channel, then he's smarter than his dad, right? And I'm a doofus, and he's the most intelligent person in the home, right? And, and in our society, generally, children are valued, right? But I want you to think about this. In the, the Greco-Roman society, they had a completely different view of children. How much do you um, contribute to the profitability of our home? Zero, right? How much, how much money do you bring into our home? Zero, right? Uh, how much maturity do you bring to our home? A little bit, right? So in their, in their view, in their society, how they viewed children was that they don't really have a lot of, to offer to the family. So they're not really worth very much. Go ahead, you can take a seat, buddy. Good job. In fact, I was reading an article about, uh, from a, a lady that uh, graduated from Harvard. On March 22nd, 2019, she wrote this article called The Value of Infants and Children in the Roman Antiquity. It was very interesting. And basically, she was saying when they went to Rome and excavated in the tombs and stuff, they didn't find very many tombs for children under the age of five. 
And in fact, they didn't find a lot of inscriptions for funerals for those children. And what they realized was because the, the Roman Greek culture didn't value children in general, but particularly children five years of age and under. In fact, they didn't even really see them as having personhood. In fact, you think about the, the Hippocratic Oath. Where did the Hippocratic Oath come from? Does anyone know who the guy was that, that came from? Hippocrates. Good job. You passed the test there. Listen to what Hippocrates says about infants. He viewed infants as abnormal creatures. So we all take the doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, right? But if you think about what he th- said, and he saw them as uh, imperfect, weak, and ugly beings. Aristotle, he viewed children as the same as insane and drunk people because of their disorderly behavior. Plutarch advised parents not to mourn their children when, when they died. In fact, he had a two-year-old daughter that died, and he took pride in the fact that, quote-unquote, he had this child um, was not worth I'm sorry, this child um, didn't have worth and therefore, quote, had no part in earth or earthly things. So my point is this, is that when you think of children like that, you think, oh, what a sweet child, you know, unless you live with them. No, just kidding. You think, what a sweet child, right? And then you think about what Jesus did here. And what Jesus did is he took a child who is generally in the Roman society seen as one of the lowest uh, groups in society. He took that child placed them in front of them, and then he said, verse 37, whoever receives such a one in my name receives me. The lowest person, one of the lowest people in society, if you receive them, you receive me. Now, who was this child? Well, if they were in Peter's house, it possibly could be one of his children there, right? And so Jesus, what's he doing in this situation? Is Jesus teaching that we should treat children with with worth and with respect and, and value them? Is he teaching that we should uh, love uh, people like we should love children? What's he teaching here? Well, I think he's kind of doing both. I think he's talking about the worth of a child and saying this child it, it has some worth in the kingdom of God. When God views him, he sees him as a person who he's made in God's image. So we actually should value children. And also I think he's particularly teaching about relationships and how we should treat one another. And I I think just kind of taking that first point, just thinking about the fact that that Jesus was teaching and elevating the worth of children, I think it's important for us to think about just in our own church, in our own lives, that we should value children as well. And again, generally in our culture we do, although that's changing, right? We're kind of reverting back to the Greco-Roman view of things. Like if you're not born yet, you're not a person we haven't gone up to five years old yet, but I don't know. Maybe that's the end of it. I don't know. You know, who knows? But it, within our church, we think about children. We should value children. In fact, I, I believe as a church, one of our most valued ministries should be children's ministries. The children in our community out here are the next generation in America. And the children in our church are the next generation for the church. And the children in our community, we need to win them for Christ. And give them the gospel and the children in our church when you do the same and then disciple them. And so I just think about, just kind of throw this out there. We're, we're looking right now for a, a nursery director. So I wanted to head up the nurseries. So kind of tongue in cheek, who wants to do that <laughs> right now, right? And sometimes people hear about working with children in nurseries and they go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, you know. And sometimes we can have this devalued view of children. And that's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. And so let's make sure we have the heart of Christ 
But also I think that Jesus was teaching here that, that we should love Christians and love one another as if they are Jesus Christ themselves, as if that person is Jesus Christ. And if you actually look down in verse 42, you can see he speaks of these little ones again. And it's clear there he's saying these little ones are young Christians. And so I think that probably Jesus is, is teaching about relationships as well. And so the, the fourth principle is that your love for a believer, and a believer represents Christ, so your love for a believer reveals your love for Jesus. So how you treat one another reveals how you treat Jesus. Because if you don't show love to another person within the body of Christ, you're actually not showing love to Jesus. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So each person in here represents Jesus. So as you love them, you're loving Jesus, and that means you're loving the Father. And as you oppose them and are disunified with them, then you're disunified with Jesus, which means you're living disunity with the Father. At the beginning of my message, I spoke of a former pastor who is seeking divorce with his wife and his family, just the pain that that will bring. So sometimes when you hear that kind of thing, I know for me, it kind of rattles you a little bit. And it shakes your faith. So I thought I would end with an illustration of another couple who faced some difficulties in their relationship. John and Isabel Kuhn were missionaries in China. And in 1928, John and Isabel were married. And they went to China as missionaries to reach some unreached uh, populations in China. And God gave them a very fruitful ministry. Of course, this was before the communists took over China. And so there were many missionaries in the country. And in 1950, during the communist takeover, they had to flee for their lives. But when they left, I want you to listen to the fruit that God gave them. When they left, 3,400 of the 18 thousand uh i think it's l-i-s-u is it lisu lisu people someone help me out i don't know but anyways the people group they were reaching were believers so three thousand over three thousand of them became believers of the eighteen thousand and then those went out and they evangelized the seven other tribes there so this is a, a picture on the screen you can see of of uh the area they went to there and what's interesting is that in 2000 10, there was a survey done, and they found in this people group that there was now 700,000, 700,000 of them, and 50% of them were Christian. So God gave them a very fruitful ministry over there. And sometimes we can think about a couple like this, like John and Isabel, and we can think, oh man, they must have been the sweetest couple, never had an argument. You know, God really used them in a great way. But at the end of her life, she had breast cancer, and therefore she was dying. And so she decided to write some books. And she wrote very frankly about her life. She was very open about their relationship. And she said, definitely at the beginning of their marriage, and in parts, different times during their marriage, they faced some, some very difficult conflicts. And they had a lot of explosive arguments. Particular, one particular story she tells about, <clears throat> she says they had this chef that worked uh, in the mission there and cooked meals for them. And she just didn't like his food and didn't like how he did things. And of course, she was a little particular about things. And her husband, John, actually loved him and had a great time and enjoyed his uh, friendship and enjoyed <clears throat> his food. So they would have arguments about it. One day, 
they had an explosive argument where they're yelling at each other. And, you know, I don't know if things were thrown, but it was one of those kind of arguments where she slams the door and she leaves the house and says, I am not coming back in China. You know, <laughs> there's really nowhere else to go. So anyways, but she walks around town and, you know, all fuming and stomping around and sulking. And, and she's in a, just is so upset about everything. And she's in a boiling rage. And she said, she said to herself when she came back, I am not going to live with a man who lives a, as a lazy who gives a lazy servant preference over his wife, you know. And so she came back in and yelled at him and stormed. And this actually represented a lot of their relationship, especially in the beginning of their relationship. So here they are in the mission field serving God, <laughs> you know, and they're having these kind of problems. And you might think to yourself, do missionaries have those kind of problems? They do, okay? Everybody does. Again, we all are sinners and we live with sinners. But even though it was painful and stressful, they were committed to exalting God. They were committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they were committed to reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. And so, over and over, they had to humble themselves and many times ask for forgiveness for their pride, seek reconciliation through conversations and through prayer and scripture reading. And at the end of the day, they had to choose, over and over, to stop constantly fighting and seeking to win through arguments, but to humbly serve each other as God would have them. And in their relationship, they begin to grow and to change and to be unified. And at the end of the day, they had a sweet gospel-centered relationship. And Isabel wrote these words at the end of her life. She says, I feel many modern marriages are wrecked on the sharp shoals as this. A human weakness is pointed out. The correction is resented. Arguments grow bitter. Young people are not ready to forgive, not willing to endure. Divorce is too quickly seized upon as the way out. But pray, pray to God to awaken the soul. Be patient until he does. This is God's way out. And it molds two people of opposite natures into one invincible whole. So God used John and Isabel in an amazing way for his glory. And many people can look at this and think, wow, look at how the gospel worked in China. That's pretty amazing. But I would actually propose this, that the great gospel work started in that home. And God, in their hearts, they decided to lift God up and exalt God in their home and in their marriage by being humble before each other and seeking reconciliation with God and with each other. And as that gospel work happened in their home, do you know what poured out of their life? A gospel work in China. And the fruit that we see in China now, particularly in this part of the, the country, in this part of the world, is as a result of the gospel, but the gospel work that started in this marriage. And God brought peace and unity to this marriage. And they saw God do the same gospel work in their ministry as he did in their marriage. And so, you know, you start a message and you talk about something really bad that happened. But you know what? God is the God who rescues and restores and reconciles. So as a church, listen to the principles of Christ for Christian unity. And don't don't let pride get in your way of true reconciliation. Let's, let's have such a desire 
to exalt God, that we're, we think, I'll do anything I can. I'll go as low as I need to serve that person and to glorify God. Truth clarifies the root of conflict is self-exaltation. The humble servant wins, and your love for a believer reveals your love for Jesus. Let's pray. As we end in prayer here, I ask you just to pray in your own heart. Maybe just examine your relationships, examine the difficulties that you're facing, and ask God, God, what would you have me to do? What is the next humble step you want me to take? How can I have reconciliation with you and with that person? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the reconciliation that's provided in Christ through his work on the cross. We truly are ambassadors. We're pleading with the world, be reconciled to God. But, oh, Lord, that must start in our own heart. That must start in our own heart. We must seek reconciliation. Well, first of all, we must be reconciled with you. And we must seek reconciliation with other people. So, God, I pray that you will enable us by your grace to take on this ministry of reconciliation. So first and foremost, God, I pray that you'll humble us before you. May we humble our own hearts and seek your face, turn from our wicked ways, and God, see your grace be poured out upon our church, our marriages, our friendships, our workplace, and our society. In Jesus' name, amen.